It has really blessed my heart how much um, you all have gone and served and fed the hungry and uh, been there for the broken through our love for the city outreach this last month and going on still here over the next several weeks. There's still things to come, uh, but it's been such a blessing to my heart. I know some of you have done that with your life groups. Others of you have done that just as families or perhaps with other folks that you know, but that's been a real blessing uh, for the way so many of you have stepped into that. So it's a blessing to know that just as we get a chance to look at a story that is perhaps the most challenging story, the most challenging passage in the Bible about that same concept, about uh, realizing the call to step forward, the call to obedience and the call to mercy. And so we look tonight in Luke chapter 10 at what classically is known as the parable of the Good Samaritan. Even in the connotation of what that parable is called, we are left to think that all the other Samaritans must be bad. Uh, the parable of the Good Samaritan is not good because there were so few good Samaritans, but because of the Jewish concept of the Samaritan people. If you know anything about the history, you have got the northern tribes of Israel somewhat mixed in with other people who lived in that area and the northern kingdom and the kingdom just above it. And so when the uh, Assyrians come and conquer and take away many of them into exile, there are some that are left behind. There are others that are taken away. And so over the centuries that follow, it becomes a thought of the Jewish folks who lived further south, uh, that these folks who were in Samaria were not truly Jewish in the way that they were. They began to develop into their own culture and known as Samaritans. They became sometimes in the minds of the Jewish people, people who were only half Jewish or even less than that because they were mixed with other peoples that were brought into that area. And so for the Samaritans, many of them felt like they were more legitimate than the Jewish people who lived further south because of the Babylonian exile and all that, that it did to take so many out of there. And so you had two groups of people who felt more legitimate legitimate than the other one, constantly pointing the finger uh, at the other one. It got so bad that even the Samaritans began to uh, want to worship on their own, and so they built a temple on a place called Mount Gerizim uh, that even was destroyed by the Jews who went there so unhappy about the fact that they had built a separate temple that they tore it down about 128 years uh, before Jesus uh, was, was born as a baby in Bethlehem. And so in all of that, the division is very deep between Samaritans and between the Jewish people, as many of you know, and we come to a passage where Jesus intentionally challenges that tonight. And so I'd like to get a chance to read beginning in verse 25 of Luke chapter 10, and we're going to look at this passage of Scripture this evening, and that is our only passage tonight, Luke 25, or excuse me, Luke 10, 25 through 37. I'm going to read this, and then we're going to say a word of prayer. And behold... A lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him, and departed, leaving him half dead. And now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. 
And so likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and then he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, The one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. Let's pray together. Father, would you help us not to pass by on the other side? Lord, for all the categories that we will be quick to put people in and all the tribes that we feel we belong to and don't belong to, Lord, would you allow us to not justify ourselves and to realize that Jesus Christ is the only justifier. Lord, will you allow us to see people as best as we can through your eyes and to bind up their wounds and to imitate the life that you've called us to of love not only for the Lord, but love for our neighbors. And so, Lord, will you work in our hearts and minds as only you can? Will you call us into action and keep us from just singing and keep us from just reading? Father, will you make real the words uh, of, of your gospel tonight in our hearts and minds? In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Philip Yancey, one of my favorite Christian authors, he's written books like um, The Jesus I Never Knew, um, The Bible Jesus Read, What's So Amazing About Grace, other books as well. If you've you know, in the days of Christian bookstores, when you could go in and peruse the stacks, normally you would see plenty of Philip Yancey books. Uh, he wrote something that um, has stuck with me ever since the first time I read it. I wanted to be able to read it tonight. He described an experience that he himself had as a young man in the 1960s or a young child uh, in his church in, uh, in Texas. And so I'm just going to read from what he writes. In the 1960s, the church deacon board mobilized lookout squads, and on Sundays, these took turns patrolling the entrances, lest any African-American troublemakers try to integrate us. I still have one of the cards the deacons printed up to give to any civil rights demonstrators who might appear. And this is what these cards said, believing the motives of your group to be ulterior and foreign to the teaching of God's word, we cannot extend a welcome to you. And we respectfully request you to leave the premises quietly. Scripture does not teach the brotherhood of man and the fatherhood of God. He's the creator of all, but only the father of those who have been regenerated. If any of you is here with a sincere desire to know Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, we shall be glad to deal individually with you. When Congress... Philip Yancey goes on to say, passed the Civil Rights Act, our church founded a private school as a haven uh, for uh, white students, expressly barring all black students. And a few quote-unquote liberal members left the church in protest when the kindergarten turned down the daughter of a black Bible professor, but most of us approved of the decision. A year later, the church board rejected a Carver Bible Institute student for membership. His name was Tony Evans. You know, we look backward across the span of time, 
we realize so many failings of categorization of, and who is my neighbor gone wrong at different points. You know, sometimes we look at the past through rose-colored glasses and there's times that we can be uh, thankful for ways that God has moved in the past and at the same time when we look backwards, often we see areas that we wish could have and, and should have been different. Tonight we look at a passage of Scripture that is brought forward essentially from a lawyer who wants to try to trip up Jesus and to say something to trap him, to test him. And like so many in the Gospels, when they seek to do this, they find all of a sudden that the tables are turned on them themselves with questions they cannot answer and responses they cannot uh, honestly uh, pursue in a, in a way that works. And this lawyer stands up to put Jesus to the test and he says the same statement that the rich young ruler will say, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? I always think it's interesting that the word inherit is used. What can I do to have something pass along to me for which I did not work and perhaps, you know, somehow, how can I receive economically, how can I receive as a matter of a contractual agreement eternal life? What must I do to inherit eternal life? And we really see a problem right from the initial question, can't we? Because if we were standing in that place without the heart and the knowledge of Jesus, we would have answered him instead of poking at his heart like Jesus does. We would have said what? Well, you can't do anything to inherit eternal life. You need to trust in the Lord Jesus. Well, obviously that'd be true, but Jesus here, knowing this man's heart, wants to walk him through something that will be a greater, not only testimony to the people around him, but a, a greater uh, confrontation to his heart attitude in that moment. The first thing I've got on your page tonight, some of you might've got excited when you saw there's only six things. Last week I had front and back. How many things did we go through? 15, something like that. Six blanks. I'm gonna let your arm recover from last week. But I think we've got time to sort of let these sink in because I think this is one of the foundational parables of Luke's gospel. And the first point that I've got there for you is I think that people who are concerned with what to do are often banking on who they think they are. People who are concerned with what to do are often in the wrong banking in who they are. So the only people who can believe there's something that we can do to get to heaven are usually folks who feel like they're not very far off and there's just one more connecting point they need to make or they just wanna hear back how awesome they already are. And so for anybody to think that doing something will be the hope, haven't reached the hopelessness of what's given to us in the scriptures. They haven't received this reality that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Many of you, I'm sure, have sat in vacation Bible schools, backyard Bible clubs, Sunday school classes with kids, and given different illustrations to prove this point. I know for me, one of the favorite ones I have is talking about long jumpers at the Grand Canyon. Y'all ever heard that one before? But this idea of, you know, what would it be like if we had you and Carl Lewis and one other person? Nobody knows who Carl Lewis is anymore. I realize I'm getting old, but I sort of have to draw the picture. You know, we took, yeah, I got a few. <laughs> Eddie and me are in the same age category, so we can talk later, so we're good to go. And so you got three there, three long jumpers at the Grand Canyon, and you all get up there, and you're so excited. So you got the first Olympic long jumper, and he jumps, and he jumps 30 feet across the Grand Canyon. Unfortunately, he was still several miles short and falls to the bottom. Carl Lewis, who of course won, I don't know how many gold medals and held the record at least at one time for the long jump. He gets up and runs, jumps even farther and breaks his own world record and yet falls to the bottom. 
And then you, you're the last one and you outdo them all. You shatter the world record by 10 feet. And yet you're still several miles from the destination. And just like the other two, you fall to the foot of the canyon. That there's no way apart from Christ. There's no amount of action, no amount of doing, no amount of self-justification that can bring someone into right fellowship with God. It can't happen. And so we see this man's heart from the very beginning that what he really thinks is either he's not very far off or his actions have already bought him entrance into the kingdom of God. Jesus, once again, doesn't give an answer that any of us were trained to give. Because right, as I said, right off the bat, we would have went somewhere else. We'd have We'd have gone with belief and heart other than, you know, action, but Jesus doesn't do this. He says, well, let's go ahead and pose what you think you are up against the basic premise of the entirety of the scriptures. You know what's written in the law. Sure, sure, you, you know what it is. Go ahead, tell me what it is. And, and Jesus essentially asks him that. Verse 27, the man repeats back. He knows the answer. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Sure, I've done all those things. Yeah, I've checked all those boxes. I, I get to sit down with couples who are getting married every once in a while and do the premarital counseling, and I start going through Ephesians 5 of what the, you know, the qualifications or what the, the calling of husbands and wives are. You get to Ephesians 5 where Paul says to husbands that they're to love their wives as Christ loved the church. And you say, you want to talk about how high the bar is on that? How impossible of a standard that is. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Now, Jesus doesn't tell him that he's done this, but he says that is the correct answer, that if someone could do that, they would have accomplished all of the law. That is correct that that's the standard. And perhaps even in that, this man is not quite sure exactly how to take that. And so he has to follow up. He has to ask a question for clarity. Let me just make sure. And the scripture tells us a very, very telling statement. But he seeking to justify himself. And that is the root of almost all of our problems. And he seeking to justify himself. Somehow, he's a lawyer, right? Making an argument and a defense for who he is, why he's good enough, why he's made it, seeking to justify himself. He said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? The second point that I've got there for you tonight is that you can't justify yourself. And that's the foundation of the gospel message. You cannot justify yourself. One of the big words that we use in Christian teaching is justification. And the center of justification is always Jesus and it is never us. That we're only justified by him through what he's done. Uh, that justification is something solved completely by Jesus. And not only his perfect life, but his death and his resurrection that he has justified through his actions, we have never justified ourselves based on our actions. 
We can't justify ourselves. And yet, you and I fall into the category, maybe not of seeking to be justified in our salvation, perhaps at times if we're not thinking through real clearly, or you might be in here tonight sort of searching through faith, not quite sure what you believe, and maybe there's some, you know, way to say, well, I'm not that bad, or I've done this, I've done that, you know, somehow thinking maybe there'll be some way I can justify myself. But even if we're not thinking of it in terms of salvation, we can be quick to just be people who are trying to justify ourselves in our actions if we're not careful. We can be self-defensive. We can be quick to be prideful. We can sort of assume that all we're called to do is what we want to do and what makes us comfortable, and that's as far as it goes. And as long as we can justify ourselves, that's the main person we're trying to convince, and we don't worry about anybody else if we're not careful. But we're not the ones ultimately we answer to, are we? We're not even called to justify ourselves in front of other people. <laughs> we're, you know, public opinion doesn't even mean that, that that's bought our justification. No, only Jesus does. Seeking to justify himself, he asks a question that he has no idea what's about to come. And who is my neighbor? See what this man should have said after Jesus' first statement about the law and, and when he answers and says, you know, to, 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 to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength and your neighbor as yourself. Jesus, when he says, you've answered correctly, do this and you will live. What should that man have said next? Well, thank you might've been good. I think he also could have said, but I can't do that. I can't. Jesus, I'm in hopeless territory because what you just said, I can't do. And for every single one of us in this room, we can't do that either. That Jesus is helping us and we've trusted him in Christ. He is working us on the road to sanctification to becoming more and more like that. But there won't be anywhere this side of heaven that we fulfill that perfectly. We won't do it. And so this man's attitude should have been, I can't do that. But instead it's, and what people do I have to be nice to again? <laughs> Who is my neighbor? Who is that? You know, think about the words of Paul in Romans 7, uh, that, that the, the good that I desire to do, I can't do, but, but the evil is right there beside me. When I long to do what's good, it's, it's sin that's there. He's speaking about his own, you know, battle with just walking through daily life and failure and, and you know, the broken road even of sanctification that, that is, is often difficult and we find our own faults and our own failures. Where that should have been on this man's heart, instead he asks, and who is my neighbor? Most Jews of the time thought of only other Jews as their neighbor. They referred to the Gentiles as dogs, particularly the Romans. They thought of them as somehow less than human. Uh, I've gotten to do ministry work in Romania, I think as I've shared with you before, and, and there are over three million uh, gypsy peoples, Roma peoples, who were really belong to a people group that is from somewhere else other than Romania that are there in Romania. And to some extent, it's almost like a segregated society in many ways. And there are actually pastors in evangelical Romanian churches who preach that gypsies don't have souls so that their people won't have to have a burden for that people group. There's a rearranging of thinking, well, these are the people I've got to reach out to and these are the, the unmentionables. You know about in, uh, in, in India, you've got the class of untouchables. 
that for about 300 million or so people that are seen at the bottom of the caste system and you don't try to do anything nice for them because ultimately they're gonna, you're gonna mess up their reincarnation, so just let them suffer and leave them alone. That for pop, the population of the United States, essentially there are that many untouchables in India who are left in extreme poverty in awful situations and they believe that's the will of God. So for the Jewish people of the time, for many of them, they only saw other Jewish people as their neighbors, is this commandment extending to them. There were others, a group called the Essenes, that started to bring it in even further, uh, that the Essenes would say, well, only certain Jews and only certain people who have, especially those who have followed a, a kind of Essene teaching, they're the ones that would fall into that category and they're our neighbors. For many of the Pharisees, it was an even smaller category. You couldn't even keep all of the laws that the Pharisees kept unless you were full-time employed as a Pharisee because you had to live your life and you couldn't keep all those unless you were with them. Remember what the Pharisees said all the time when they saw Jesus with the crowds? What's he doing with all these sinners? What's he doing with all these people who are not my neighbor? All of a sudden, the categories begin to bring in who the, who the group is. Who am I called to really interact with? Who am I called to have a burden for? Who am I called to truly want to reach out to and care about not only their life, but their soul? And there's something inside of each one of us, if we're not careful, that wants to make that group smaller and smaller and smaller. Till all of a sudden, the only people that we need be burdened for are the ones who are so much like us that they're easy to reach out to and they may already have made it and there's nothing to worry about anyway. And so, Jesus does what he often does. Often when engaging with people, he would either ask them questions or when it came to the point where it was time to tell a story, he tells a story. And he engages them with a story. Andrew Peterson, one of my favorite uh, Christian artists, said it this way. I don't know if he's quoting someone else when he said it. But he said, if you want somebody to know the truth, you tell them. If you want somebody to love the truth, you tell them a story. And so Jesus wants what he's about to say to be remembered in a, in a, in a particularly uh, memorable, I guess, to be redundant way. And so he tells it not just as a commandment, but as a story. I got some pictures for you tonight. The road from Jerusalem to Jericho. Does that look like territory you'd like to walk through? So you can see Jerusalem is actually on higher ground and you would descend out of Jerusalem, sort of going downhill through this area that is a, a stream of canyons all the way down to, uh, to Jericho. So there would be this descent. And so there's this sort of picture in your mind going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. You're descending away from the place that has several palaces, that has, you know, sort of opulence as being one of the largest, you know, towns, or cities, whatever we want to call it in that place. And you would be going down through the canyon to Jericho. Jesus tells a story about a man that is going down that way. If you want to see a closer view, this is the Roman road that is still there after all these years. We can't keep potholes out of our highways for six weeks, can we? And the Roman roads are still there. Here's a closer up view. So you can see often for these roads, what you would have is you would have either one side along a steep hill and the other with a, with a deep drop off. Uh, or at times you would have other situations. You can see this is one view um, 
the road from Jerusalem descending down to Jericho. This is a painting that was done about 150 years ago. But you can see uh, here where you're coming and you've got either sheer cliff edges or, you know, mountains on either side. You're, you're sort of constantly stuck with nowhere to go on these roads. So this becomes a dangerous place to go. Even during the, the Crusades, there were forts that were built along this way to keep uh, travelers safe who were going on these roads because they were so dangerous even centuries later. These are uh, Samaritans, modern Samaritans, just to see, you know, to show you what uh, they look like, the best we can tell what they would have looked similar to in Jesus' day as well. And then this is what's often called the uh, traditional inn of the Good Samaritan. It is still there today. Obviously, Jesus tells what we best understand to be a fictional story, but um, if it was referring to something real, this, this perhaps could have been the place uh, that would be referenced to where if they were just thinking about where the Samaritan would have gone or that this kind of thing took place, this is one place that's uh, been standing for quite some time. And this is a denarii uh, as he gets to the, what is left, a day's wages. So whatever, whatever you make in a day, that's what is left and what could cover him um, for uh, the time of his recovery. Probably most of you immediately will think, well, I wouldn't do it now. Uh, it's a lot more expensive to stay at a hotel or whatever it was, but for this person, he was able to recover and uh, that, would, that would cover, theoretically, everything that he still needed. And so we come to the parable of the Good Samaritan. Jesus begins to speak, and he talks about a man who's going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. The assumption then, obviously, uh, because he's not categorized as anything else, is that this is a Jewish man. He's leaving holy territory, to, so to speak, and going on a dangerous road down to Jericho. And it's then that he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Now much ink has been spilled to say why he passed by on the other side. Perhaps it was ceremonial uncleanness. If the man was dead or going to die, he feared he would be ceremonially unclean. Perhaps he passed by on the other side because he was trying to perhaps act like he didn't see or he didn't hear and could just move right along without quite being so, uh, you know, confronted by what was taking place on the other side of the road. Either way, what is clear is that he was wrong to keep going when there was somebody uh, who had been beaten and robbed and left for dead on the side of the road. Likewise, a Levite, someone of the priestly line, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. And so two religious category people who were confronted with a problem, perhaps because they had, even though they had somewhere to go, they had a place to be, they were in a hurry, nevertheless, they were confronted with somebody who was in real need and they chose to pass by and to keep going. Heard a story of a seminary professor some years back who gave his class a paper on the Good Samaritan. All of them had to write something like a 15-page paper and come bring it in on a certain day. That was their final project for the year. So they all got their paper, you know, arranged and, and he knew uh, he was scheduled times for them to come in, each one of them individually, to bring that paper to him where he was. And so he set this up. What he also set up is he had an actor that he hired to be on the side of the path that all of them were going to be walking down on the way to his classroom and he called on that actor to act as if he was in extreme distress because he wanted to see out of that whole class who had spent so much time riding on the Good Samaritan, how many of them would not pass by on the other side? Guess how many? One. The others passed by, had somewhere to be, 
There was religious activity and there was a great amount of knowledge they wanted to bestow on their professor about the meaning of the parable of the Good Samaritan. And yet when faced with the same challenge, they did nothing. It's very easy for us to be verbally believers in Jesus Christ. Often we are most confronted with where our faith comes into action. Whether we're willing to be inconvenienced for the sake of the gospel. And I know in our day and age, there's all sorts of things to consider in lines of safety and other things. All of that is, is fair game for us to consider and to be wise about. But I think if we're not careful, we see the same tug in our life to merely justify ourselves, go through with what makes us comfortable. And if we're not careful, we never see our fellow man laying by the side of the road. Whatever the situations might be for the people who live next door to you, three doors down from you, across the street, who you go to school with, you go to work with, you you know in your family and are walking through difficult things. The third thing that I've got on your sheet that night is that Jesus wants to destroy our categories. I really do believe that in our heart, in my heart. Jesus wants to destroy our categories. I don't mean that we're somehow not meant to recognize the reality of the world that we live in, but I think we are called to not have any human being created in God's image that we would say, nope, not that one. Mm, that, one that one's not my neighbor. We would be wrong at that point because we know that Jesus does something terribly uncomfortable for the people because he makes a huge turn in the story that all of a sudden raises the hair on everybody's neck as he says it, but a Samaritan wait a second, this isn't going to be the good guy, right, Jesus? You're not turning this story with a Samaritan. Tell me that's not what's going on. All of them begin to go, oh, no, we see where this story's going. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. And he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. In the, uh, 19, the year 1987, Fred and Marlene Nichols were stopped at a service station near Mobile, Alabama, and they were going to ask directions when all of a sudden, as they were stopped and had just come to a stop off the road, a huge truck plowed into the side of their vehicle. When they did, Mrs. Nichols was severely injured. And so needing to go with his wife to the hospital, but unsure what to do about their car and belongings, Mr. Nichols heard a stranger's reassuring words and felt a comforting hand on his shoulder. And the man told Mr. Nichols to go ahead. He'd stay with the car. But as he looked at the man, Mr. Nichols all of a sudden recognized who was speaking to him and said, you're coach Bob Knight. Bobby Knight said, I am, but we won't talk about that right now. Bobby Knight had just battled to a national championship in 1987 with Indiana University. He was leaving the championship in New Orleans and en route to Atlanta. He's best known for throwing a chair across the court in the middle of the game. And he stopped and had compassion on people who needed it. How much more should people who know Jesus be at least like Bob Knight? The Good Samaritan that comes to the rescue of this man does what would have uh, been normal at the time. I, I doubt many of you would want olive oil poured on your open wounds these days, but that was one antiseptic to try to help things that were, uh, were going on, wine in the same way. 
And as he brings him, he takes out money, gives it to the innkeeper, says, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I'll repay you when you come back. Interestingly enough, Jesus ends this parable and he begins to uh, ask a question to the man who posed it. Verse 36, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And then the man gives an answer. And I think it probably went like this. The one who showed him mercy. (laughs) Remember in Luke 15 when the older brother finds out that the younger brothers come home, the prodigals returned, and the older brother goes out to his father and he says, this son of yours who wasted all of your wealth with prostitutes has returned home. He doesn't call him my brother. He just says, this son of yours. The same way this man can't bring himself to say the Samaritan. Nope. The one who showed him mercy. (laughs) Two things that go together here on your sheet. Number four, Jesus wants us to put neighboring to practice. Jesus wants us to put neighboring to practice. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Which one proved? Not just talked a good game, not just worshiped on the right day, not just belonged to the right tribe. Which of these proved to be a neighbor? And then number five, as we see in much of Scripture, this story brings along the same challenge to beware the hardened heart. That after all of this, the man's response was that one who was merciful. At least he recognized the truth, and obviously I'm reading into this some amount based on my own assumptions. But there's a recognition of the truth, but sometimes even a recognition of a truth can come with a hard heart. Are we willing to allow the Lord to soften our hearts so we can trust him and follow him? And Jesus then closes by making a a really interesting statement. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. I think I've said before, and I'll probably say it too much, but it's a fascination point with me with the Greek language. The Greek language has what's called a second person plural. We have it in the southern United States. It's called (laughs) y'all. We're like most languages in the world here in the south. We're able to distinguish between you and y'all. Proper English just says you, singular, one individual, you, collective, all of the individuals. It's the same word. That's confusing. Thankfully, in the Greek, we're often able to distinguish because Jesus said, y'all, aren't you thankful? At least the Greek equivalent. There's a second person singular in this verse. And so Jesus concluding his parable and this man's answer to say, the one who showed him mercy, Jesus doesn't then seemingly stand back, address the crowd and say, then y'all go and do likewise. Maybe he points his finger at this man and the singular, you go and do likewise, is what's given here. 
Jesus doesn't just have a plan for the collective church that we say, well, I go to Green Street and Green Street loves people. I'm so thankful that other people that are at my church love people. We have such a missional church and I'm so thankful that they do this and they do that. And by osmosis, I'm part of that too. Can I just extend to you the words of Jesus? Not only y'all, but you go and do likewise. How would the Lord challenge not only us collectively, but us individually to be not only good neighbors, but neighbors at all to the world around us? What categories would he break down in my heart and your heart? In what ways would he say, don't pass by on the other side? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the blessing of your word and the challenge of the Lord Jesus that seeks to find and to create in us a soft heart and action and proving to be a neighbor. And so, Lord, for the ones who come to our mind tonight, family members, co-workers, friends, neighbors, people who need hope and need Jesus, Lord, would you help us to love, to bind up wounds, to be patient, and to seek to have Christ formed in the hearts of those who do not know him. Lord, for all the other religious activity, help us not to pass by on the other side. We thank you, Father, and we praise you in the name of Jesus Christ, our justifier. Amen.